Also, just for the record, according to 23andMe, I am 46% British and Irish. So, <laughs> okay, I can use whatever beckon accent I want. I, I don't think you can, but okay. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, a movie review podcast that dreams are made of. Keith Foster, you are in San Diego, California. And you are Cassidy Robinson, recording from an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today we are going to be reviewing the Banshees of Inishirin, uh, the new film by... Playwright turned filmmaker Martin McDonough. Uh, you're going to give us a solo review of Black Panther Wakanda Forever in Keith Foster's Superhero Corner. And <laughs> is that just what we're calling it now? All the movies you don't want to see? It's not that I don't want to see it, it's that I wanted to see Banshees more and I really only had the time and energy to see one of them in a the theater. And for the streaming homework, we are going to be talking about the movie Elvis by Baz Luhrmann. Came out earlier this year and is now streaming on HBO Max. Yeah, uh, a bit of a, a 2022 catch-up year this episode is. It is. It is. And before we get into all of these topics, I think we have to say R.I.P. Kevin Conroy. Yes. Uh the voice of Batman. D honestly, like, the definitive voice of Batman. Like, that. that's still the voice I hear when I read Batman comics. Like, he just... Su such an iconic performance of that character. Very sad. He was only 66. He was relatively young. Um, we actually saw him in a Batman panel... A few years back when we were at WonderCon, and he was there uh, to be part of the promotion of the 80th anniversary of Batman um, as a character in comic books. Yeah, you know, I've seen a lot of people posting about uh, their condolences and, and their grief of Kevin Conroy, and that's what everyone keeps saying. You know, people our age especially – is when I read Batman, it's his voice that I hear. I oh, I mean, absolutely. Like, I, I still think the animated series is the, to me, is still the definitive take on the character. Like, the movies are great. The comics are great. But, again, for our generation, that was the world of Batman. That sort of formed everything I know Batman to be and because it was so well done, it was so dark and adult. Uh, and I have yet to see an interpretation of the Batman, uh, that has filled out the world the way that animated series did. I, I completely agree. So, uh, RIP to Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman, 
Um, another thing I, I, I saw somebody tweet or something was that, you know, they were talking about Christian Bale's interpretation of Batman and the Batman voice that he puts on. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he said, they said something to the effect of uh, the difference between what Bale was doing and what Kevin Conroy understood about the character is that when Kevin Conroy was doing a voice, it was when he was Bruce Wayne. Not when he was Batman. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, fuck. That's such a good way to put it. Mm -hmm. That's the impersonation. Exactly. All right. Um, I did want to go over a little bit of movie news. We uh, haven't done it in a while. Before you start talking about uh, Wakanda Forever. Okay. This is from Deadline Hollywood. In what makes a high-profile return to filmmaking for John Waters, Village Roadshow Pictures has optioned his new novel, Liarmouth, a romance that Waters will write the script and direct. And I hadn't uh, looked at this in a while, but I knew knew it had been quite some time since he had directed a film. He's done a lot of writing... And speaking tours and just kind of being famous for being John Waters. But he hasn't actually made a movie since A Dirty Shame in 2004. Damn. All right. So, I mean, that's almost 20 years. That is a long time. Yeah, that was the one with, uh, that was the one with Johnny Knoxville. Yeah, it's been a good while. And I'm excited to see what he does. You know, I think his voice in comedy and satire and he was always kind of ahead of the curb. Like Mm -hmm. nobody was really ever ready for what he was doing while he was doing it. And wasn't until decades later that people started to catch up with him. And now we're seeing like these hints or flashes of his influence in other people's films. I I think I mentioned him when we talked about Pearl, because there's aspects of that movie that I felt owe some sort of debt to his dark comedy. Sure. Uh, Yeah, no, that's interesting. You know what's... uh, I'm going to just admit this. This is a bit of a, a hall of shame moment for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Waters is a bit of a blind spot for me. I I am very familiar with him as a cultural figure. Sure. I don't know if I've seen any of his movies. You never saw Hairspray, the original with Ricky Lake. No, like I said, I don't. I don't think I've seen any of his movies. I I I think I caught some of Crybaby on TV. Hmm. I think uh, I remember Comedy Central played that a lot. So I think I've caught a lot of that, but that might be it. Like, I've never even seen Pink Flamingos. <laughs> remember when I said that uh, it took people 10 or so years to kind of catch up with his with his sense of humor? Sure, yeah. I don't think people are still ready for Pink Flamingos. <laughs> Uh, we watched that in grad school in a cult movie class I was in, and there's only eight of us, and there were still walkouts. <laughs> really? Yeah, there was there was this uh, French girl who was in our class 
who did not appreciate one scene in particular. I won't ruin it. Uh, Hairspray was his breakthrough hit. That mm. actually... I saw the remake. A lot of people did. And it was a it was a Broadway show before they put it out as a movie musical. But uh, his original film was the first movie he did that was PG, I think. Because up to that point, his stuff was pretty hard R, if not pushing that. And definitely more on the cult, low-budget side of things. Whereas Hairspray was his attempt at kind of making something a little bit more mainstream. But yeah, I would I would say start there before you dive into like Pink Flamingos or uh, <laughs> anything before that, especially. I'd say a, a Serial Mom with Kathleen Turner, it holds up really well and might actually be might be his best film. Um, and I'm not I have not seen Pecker, but I know that one has its fans as well. Yeah, I remember the trailer for that, but um, I definitely would not have been able to, uh, I don't think, handle John Waters when that came out. Okay, here's one that we were pretty excited about. We all were wondering, waiting, uh, Netflix has greenlit the second season of Neil Gaiman's The Sandman. This was a while ago yeah. that they announced this. Finally. So, my theory is, Netflix unlike other streaming services releases the whole season at once. And so it is harder to keep a Netflix show in the convert in like the cultural conversation for as long as say, you know, something that does a weekly release or Amazon will that where they will release the first like two or three episodes all at once and then do a weekly release. So I think they purposely were holding on to the the official renewal release of Sandman just to get give it that little bump of anticipation interest, I guess. Because if you look at the way it happened, you know, they released it. And then a couple of weeks later, they released that like bonus episode and then they teased the information out for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, you know, there was even that like, oh, will Netflix cancel it because it's so expensive. So I think this has just been a big whole like to me, I think it was like obvious that they were going to renew it because it was, a, I think, a, a big hit. But. Yeah, things are so mysterious with streaming numbers that it's hard to say for sure. So I think it was just uh, to me theater that it, it ever wouldn't get renewed. I don't know. I mean, crazier things have happened, especially with Netflix. And uh, Neil Gaiman was right there online, being very much part of that, you know, he everyone kept asking him day after day, have you heard any news yet? Have you heard any news? And a lot of what we were hearing was from him, which was basically like, I don't know. I'm still crossing my fingers. So do you think he would be that that cheeky? I, I yes and no. I think that, um, <clears throat> you know. Because it, it sounded like po- to me. It's like, possible that those decisions were made you know, in the corporate back rooms and they just 
hadn't discussed it with him yet or hadn't mm-hmm. told him yet. He is pretty forthcoming with his fans. So right. I don't think that he would straight up lie about it. Um, but I I do think, I don't know. I think it's it's one of those things where it's like maybe he hadn't heard anything officially, but was like, you know, maybe if I can continue to sort of drum up a fan support that will make Netflix's decision easier. Sure. I, I, I think is it, did he play the game? Yes. I think very much so. Uh, I don't think he straight up lied to anybody though. Okay. Yeah. That it, it felt like to me, like part of, part of what was happening was there needed to be a demand for a second season besides yeah. just the numbers. Like I think, I don't I don't know how fucking Netflix works. It's a it's a mystery over there, but I think I part of it Netflix is not Netflix works. Right. Right. I think part of it is yeah, they look at the the clicks and the uh the amount of times that people are watching or streaming something, but I think beyond that they're also looking at what kind of online discussion is happening. It sure. are people yeah. still talking about it weeks after the season comes out. And so I kind of felt like Neil Gaiman was was sort of cheerleading and, you know, trying to make everyone clap to make Tinkerbell come alive again. I I think uh, maybe it was... Yes, I, I think that's more the situation of, like, he is aware that it needs this sort of cultural support to continue to justify its price tag. Yeah. And, you know, maybe he was sort of leading that charge, but I don't think anybody ever realistically thought it was going to be canceled. I mean, it was a massive hit. Netflix needs hits right now, and they need shows that people are talking about. So, Mm -hmm. yes, I do think maybe some of the discourse was a little forced, but... Uh, ultimately, I'm just happy we're getting more Sandman. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the Sandman, Adam Sandler will reunite with the Sadfi brothers for a new movie that will begin filming this winter. Yes. Give me, give me more Sandler Safdie. Uh, I mean, Uncut, Uncut Gems was such a surprising movie in every sort of regard i mm-hmm. think uh I, i'm just very excited to see a what the safties do next and b i i really like this pivot sandler is taking in his career of of uh i'm not gonna say giving a damn because i do think he even enjoys his bad projects right but i'm gonna say his new career pivot of of pushing himself yeah put it that way you know uncut gems we reviewed hustle earlier this year uh was a solid performance by him so i i'm very excited to see what he continues to do as a performer agreed yeah there's very little in the way of details as far as what this movie is going to be about um but given high times and Uncut Gems, it's probably going to give us a heart attack. <laughs> yeah, definitely take a Xanax before you watch the movie. Yes. <laughs> Be well rested 
and uh, and no caffeine. Yes, no caffeine. <laughs> okay, well, that is what I have for the movie news. I'm gonna. Well, I have, before we move on, I have a thing for you. Oh, okay. Uh, I went to see the Banshees of Inisherin last night, and there were three. Count them three. One, two, three trailers for movies about movies. Oh, same here. Yeah. So what were the what were the three? One of them was the Fablemans, right? Yes, one of them was the Fablemans. The new Steven Spielberg uh, biopic them, directed by Steven Spielberg. Uh-huh. <laughs> one of them was uh James Mangold's new thing. It's not showing up on his IMDb. It's something like The Path of Light or The Something of Light. I think you have the wrong director. It's the first time I saw it. Um, I think you mean Sam uh, Mendes's new jump. thing. Yes, I do mean Sam Mendes's new thing. Yeah. Uh, the the Empire of Light. Mm-hmm. And then the other one was Damien Chazelle's new thing uh, for Babylon. Mm-hmm. I did not see that trailer, but I did but see the other two. Three in a row. And, like, I can only take so much uh, theater projector porn in one <laughs> sitting. Yeah. It was just a lot of people stoically talking about light reflected, refracted off a screen and then, like, you know, immediately after is Nicole Kidman walking up for her AMC uh, <laughs> shtick about heartbreak feels good in a place like this. I was just like, okay, we get it. Y'all like movies. <laughs> I'm here. I'm at a movie theater. I'm sold. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I I want to be moved. Please move me. Right. I mean, it's that time of the year. One of the staples of the prestige genre is movies about the joys of cinema. So, you know, I don't know. We'll, I've, I've heard mixed to positive things about the Fablemans. Um, same with Babylon. Um, I'm curious to see what this uh, what the award season stuff is going to to give us because it doesn't seem like there's like a a theme overall over the different stuff that I'm seeing out there. Yeah, it's it's just such a bummer. Be I I hate award season because it's like all these movies that I've been watching all year long just kind of get ignored for the thing that the fucking critics saw last week. But I'm sure they're all fine. Mm -hmm. um, I actually know somebody who was an extra in Babylon, so I'm interested in that. My whole thing with with that, and then but, we can know, move like on to uh, to Wakanda Forever, um, yes. is yeah. I ha I have less problem with the movies that get released during award season so much as the concept of award season. I just wish oh, yeah. that these were sprinkled out throughout the calendar rather than shoved all in the last, basically all in December and then run off into January for anybody who isn't getting a four-year consideration screener. Um, yes, exactly. That's what annoys me about it. So Because I don't have like the time or the resources kind of or the ability to see all these movies in three weeks. 
And no, nobody does. Like, unless you're getting these screeners and it's yeah. just, it just, to me, it puts like kind of this thumb mark on the movie of like, yeah, we are good enough for awards. And it's just kind of annoying, but that doesn't mean any of them are bad movies. Yeah. I wonder how, when is the last time that a movie released in the first third of the year ended up winning Best Picture. Because it, I know that that happened with, in, in the case of uh, uh, Silence of the Lambs. That was a February release that ended up winning Best Picture. But mm-hmm. it might have been, that might have been like the most recent time where that happened. I, but I don't know. I think it was uh, uh, Deadpool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should have said it's like Freddy Got Fingered or something like that. Um, <laughs> talk Speaking to us. of superhero movies that definitely want to be in consideration for Best Picture, uh, I'll give you my quick rundown of Black Panther Wakanda Forever. Go for it. So this picks up after all of the Avengerses is, uh, you know, this is post-in-game phase four Marvel or whatever. And the movie starts with a funeral for T'Challa, previously played by Chadwick Boseman, who, um, you know, tragically died of cancer much, much too young. The Marvel chose the route of, we're not going to recast this part. Um, uh, we're going to continue, you know, this movie without him. So the movie opens with this funeral procession. Wakanda as a nation is now more vulnerable than ever because they don't have, uh, you know, the world sort of knows they don't have a Black Panther protecting them. And there is, uh, in incident off in the ocean uh, where this ocean liner is researching and uh, comes across a natural source of vibranium in the ocean, whereas previously only Wakanda has had access to this fictional vibranium metal, which has allowed them to progress as a much more advanced nation than any other country on the world. This causes an international incident, and so Wakanda is kind of left having to defend themselves in this situation that that they don't really know what's going on either. And there is this underwater kingdom uh, led by Tinoc Huerta as Namor, that also has access to this resource of vibranium. Uh, and so because of that, they want to hunt down and kill the person who made the technology to track the vibranium. And Shuri from Wakanda decides that she needs to protect this scientist. Which leads Wakanda into this conflict with this underwater nation, uh, all for the sake of this one person who has somehow found a way to 
track vibranium. So that's the basic plot. That is how Wakanda versus Namor happens, uh, which his underwater kingdom does have a name. I can't remember it. They do not refer to it as Atlantis, uh, which I think is interesting. In general, it has more of a South American, like Mesoamerican, Aztec vibe to it um, than anything in the comics. Um, so, you know, kind of a different take on Namor and this underwater kingdom. Um, but really, this movie is very, it's very all over the place. It's very disjointed. This movie feels, I mean, it wants to be a superhero movie, but I mean, this whole movie is just kind of a funeral to Chadwick Boseman. Like it, it, it doesn't feel like a Black Panther movie, even though, sure, we get some Black Panther action. The the mantle is filled um, without too many spoilers. But this movie's about mourning. It's about grieving. And to me, it's fascinating because it's, you know, they're, they're grieving the death of a real person, but with a fictional character in this, this whole fictional setup. And that is both the most interesting thing about the movie and this movie's biggest flaw. It, it can't really move on and be the sort of crowd-pleasing superhero movie that Marvel is known for uh, because it's it's just so overshadowed by this real-life tragedy. And uh, Letitia Wright kind of takes the main stage as her character Shuri. Um, and I know there was a lot of controversy with her on the set. Um, I don't know how much of that was rumor and how much of that is genuine. Uh, but I will say she's not Chadwick Boseman. Like she, she doesn't necessarily have the same sort of star draw that he does. And so this movie feels a little rudderless you know, it, it's sort of like if you did a James Bond movie without James Bond in it. It, it just feels like something's missing. And, and the, you know, the whole plot is whatever. It's very superhero-y. We need to set up these reason, this reason for them to fight. It sort of doesn't make sense. And the movie isn't super interested in making it make sense. Um... I will say, I think Tina Cuerta is great as Namor. I love the, I love the design of this underwater kingdom. I love the look of it. Uh, he needs to be thirty five percent more arrogant douchebag. <laughs> uh, like I, I feel like this movie is. It's obviously trying to be culturally sensitive, you know, in the way that Black Panther was this sort of elevated Afrofuturism, this is also trying to, you know, uh, give this Latin America their superhero, their their Wakanda. And so part of that makes him not feel as true to the character as I think he should be. Like, he should be, you know, Namor's a dick. He's, he's just as much an antagonist as he is a protagonist. And 
I do think sometimes the movie goes out of its way to make him too understanding. Uh, uh, it tries to make him too empathetic. Um, right. And, but they, they did kind of uh, try and do that, that a little bit with, uh, with Killmonger as well. It's like he was the villain, but they gave mm-hmm. him a point of view that you could kind of understand. Is that sort of what they're trying to do here or is it something else? No, yeah, that's sort of what they're trying to do here, and I think, I, I think it was good. I, I actually, I, I think all of the underwater stuff is probably the best stuff of this movie, um, as far as from a superhero perspective. It, it's just they were trying to make him so relatable and empathetic that I think that loses a little bit of what makes Namor special as a character. Cause he's a fucking asshole, and and I I just think they needed a little bit more of that. Um, but the the art design, the just in general, the way everything is shot underwater looks so good. Uh, in contrast to stuff like uh, Aquaman, where everything just looks very CGI and very green screen, like. This feels like, oh, this is an underwater kingdom. Like, it feels like a lot of stuff was actually shot underwater. Uh, It's very dark. It's very, you know, like, light does not get down there, uh, um, you know, because it's the ocean floor. Like, all of that is really cool and really well done. It's just, when you're watching it, I feel like you cannot help but think how much better of a movie it would have been to see T'Challa square off against Namor because that's what it felt like this movie needed it it, it has it's two movies it's it's this funeral procession for Chadwick Boseman and it's trying to be this Marvel you know Wakanda versus uh not Atlantis and it never really comes together in a way that's totally satisfying. But it also makes this movie kind of fascinating. Like, it is, it feels very different than a normal Marvel project. It, it feels very like, you know, Ryan Coogler was very attached to what he was trying to say here. And it ultimately. It's less of a superhero movie and more of a movie about grief and and moving on from grief. How how do you continue? So it, it is a very strange movie in Marvel's canon for sure, and it's it is very emotional um, because the grief is real because you know they're mourning a real person, they're mourning a real star, um, but. It, it yeah, it's it's very hard for the movie to move on past that. Okay, um, yeah, I don't know. When you were describing just the setup, I was bored to tears uh, <laughs> of the idea of like you know a battle for fictitious resource under the sea. But if there if there is an emotional component to it, I hope that that makes up for. Th- how generic that plot sounds. Yes. But- I, I will. I mean, I will say the emotional component overwhelms the rest of it to, to the point where, 
you kind of forget why they're fighting. Mm. And that's sort of a problem because it's like, again, they make him a little, uh, they make Namor a little too reasonable. And so it's, it's like, why are they fighting again? Right. Girl. What, like what, what's happening there? So it, it is both, better in that it is more entertaining uh but it is also problematic because there's not as far as plot goes there's not much of a driving force here okay what do you give the movie man i don't know it is such a it is such a roller coaster of a movie i would probably i'd probably give it a b minus Maybe a C plus. Like it's it it's definitely not as coherent as most Marvel movies are. Uh it, it it feels like it's two movies most of the time. It is this this movie dealing with this very heavy subject matter, and it's also uh, we all you know, we have to progress phase four. So there's these random scenes with like Martin Freeman and Julia Louis Dreyfus that do nothing for the actual story. Um, like I said, it's it's kind of a beautiful mess, but because of that, it's one of the more interesting movies, Marvel movies I've seen in a while. Hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for that. Now to the movie that nobody saw this weekend. <laughs> Um, well, maybe some people did, but... You know who did? We fucking did. We did, yeah. Uh, I believe it came out a few weeks back in limited uh, screening, and now it's playing a little wider. But we reviewed the new Martin McDonough film, The Banshees of Inishirin. Uh Martin McDonough previously had made the films In Bruges, Seven Psychopaths, and Three Billboards to... In Ebbing, Missouri. Outside um, Ebbing, Missouri. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Yes. And this one has him reuniting with Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson, who started in Bruges together. So in this film, this is a period piece. This takes place on the eve of the uh, Irish Civil War in an island off of Ireland called Inishirin. There's actually uh, not a lot of plot here. The main story is it's a a small village of working class Irishmen, uh, one of which played by Colin Farrell, Patrick. Yeah, there's Podrick in Colm. This is a movie of my people. If I can't do an offensive accent for this movie, then I can't do it for any movie. Are you even Irish? Look at me beard and ask me again if I'm Irish, you wee gobshite. Anyway, uh, I have some Irish heritage, yes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so Colin Farrell's character uh, has a long-standing friendship with Brendan Gleeson's character, and until one day when he goes to try and start a conversation, and uh, Brendan Gleeson's character Colm says uh, he has no more use for uh, Podrick and tells him to leave him alone under all circumstances. And Colin Farrell is very confused by this. He doesn't know where this sudden coldness is coming from. And he is living with his sister, played by Carrie uh, Condon. And they're trying to sort of figure out together why it is that 
Colm has suddenly decided that he doesn't want him in his life anymore. So the movie is has this very kind of fable way of storytelling where he keeps approaching him over and over again and keeps trying to get to the heart of what the disagreement is about. And what ends up happening is we see these two sort of act out in surprising and violent ways, seemingly based on some miscommunication or misunderstanding. And I think when you when you step away from from the parable of the story, the two things that come out the most is sort of the uh, the effects of male repression and when you have the inability to communicate how that type of buildup of uh, misplaced affection or disaffection plays out physically, as well as in the background of the story, literally hearing the bombs of the Irish Civil War. This seems to be something of a parable about that, sort of of the arbitrary nature of man-made violence and seeing it tear a country apart based upon egos and what have you. Yeah, not just ego, but I think, you know, more than a little bit of boredom as well. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, this is a, this is like you said, a working class um, island where there's not a lot going on. So, you know, they didn't have the internet. They didn't have, uh, TV even, you know, they, they only had to entertain themselves. They had music and books and conversations at the pub. So it, it's also it has this very like historical quality to it where you hear these accounts of of people acting very ridiculously uh, and the ways things can heighten uh, very quickly when when that's kind of all that's going on. Right. Yeah, and also it's, it's a very small community, so everyone knows everybody. So even if you want to avoid somebody, you can't just blend into the crowd and lose them because you might run into them on the way to church or on the way to the pub, or you might tell one person something in confidence, but it's doesn't take one or two people to get back to the person you didn't want to hear it. So it's impossible yeah, and to really to really maintain this level of isolation from someone you were supposed to be good friends with. Well, and also on top of that, you know, there's only like one or two roads leading in and out of town. So even if you're able to successfully avoid them socially like it, mm-hmm. it's it is only an inevitability that you're going to run paths with this person uh again right uh, also i think it's worth mentioning there's sort of a subplot here where in colin farrell's frustration he turns to this uh young man about town played by barry Co- cogan uh dominic and sort of establishes a friendship 
with him mm-hmm. uh, on similar terms, where he doesn't necessarily like this guy, um, but he's kind of all he has to talk to outside of his family unit. But um, uh, but Perry Hogan plays, you know, he's a young man. He's he's very anxious and and. Uh, energetic and horny and and awkward um, and a little weirdo like Barry Cogan always plays in movies. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And so um, there, there is also kind of this interesting B plot where he is doing the same thing to somebody else that right. is being done to him, uh, but so perhaps you- less less unkindly. Right. So you kind of see this this. Uh, this these types of relationships are sort of being passed down generationally. Yeah. Um yeah. based purely upon sort of the social conditionings and the mores of this tiny little closed off community, which I don't think is, you know, story wise an accident, is isolated on an island. Like they have to use a boat to get onto the mainland. Yeah. All of this being said it is also Martin McDonough, so it's very clever dialogue. Yes. Um, uh, it, it is fairly humorous. Uh, you know, I would call this a sort of dark comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of... It, it, you know, when I sort of saw the poster, and I, I only kind of half-watched the trailer, because I knew I was going to see it anyway... So I tried to go in as cold as I could. Um, I have to admit, I was not super excited about it because uh, this looks very period, very sort of grim and boring. Um, but I did not find it to be those things. Right. It's very minimal. I mean, there's like I said, there's this is movie. This is a movie that's all about story and and almost entirely not about plot at all. You know, there's not a lot of plot conceits in terms of, you know, uh, any sort of narrative mechanics to make the characters do the things I do. It's a story all about those interactions. And it's almost the movie's making a point to say that these interactions are entirely organic and they don't need any, um, you know, plot pressure to for these characters to behave the way they do the the story comes out of comes out of their little run-ins with each other and these conversation set pieces that the movie's based around um and yeah i mean martin mcdonough before he started making films and i think even while he was making films uh is a playwright and i feel like of all of his cinematic work you feel that the most here yeah, I think, you know, because of the the limited locations and the limited cast, yeah. um, you know, because it's, essentially it's a cast of two, three main characters mm-hmm. and a, a couple supporting actors. Um, but, you know, this is mostly a big showcase for Colin Farrell, Brennan Gleeson, and Kerry Condon. Yeah. Which, um, Brennan Gleeson, of course, you know, another superb performance. This one in particular, I think, is even more interior than than things we've gotten from in the, him in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of talking about him. 
Um, but he, you know, he only has a few scenes um, and where he gets to do a lot with very little on the page. Yeah, this, I mean, a movie almost entirely about male angst and repression requires all of, you know, most of this cast, with the exception of uh, the female lead, um, who sort of acts as the voice of reason in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, everybody else, there's this duality between what they what they're saying to each other and what their intentions are interiorly. Well, I don't I don't know. I feel like uh Brendan Gleeson is pretty honest and blunt and uh certainly is not speaking metaphorically uh <laughs> with some <laughs> of the things he's talking about. No, yeah, I'm, well I mean, I think he acts out and I think they both do, but I but we never yeah. really discover, you know, where this pathology is coming from. We never really have a full resolution of what it is that is driving the sudden change of mood or perception. And I think that's the interior performance that you're talking about. Um, As opposed to, you know, because he, you know, otherwise seems like he's living a fairly simple and happy life. He's a fiddle player, musician. He has, he conducts a band at the pub. He goes to church and he has, uh, some conversations with the priest in the um in the confessional booths but even those conversations feel like he's keeping himself guarded you know because he's, yeah, he's very yeah, defensive yeah, I, I, everyone's defensive with the priest which is kind of a non-running joke but <laughs> um yeah i mean i think the thing that McDonough does really well is balancing dialogue and humor and and uh, situational comedy with yeah this deep well, well of Irish sorrow. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Again, all of the sort of marketing material made me like you know be like, uh, all right, I guess we're gonna see this. Yeah, um, and then of course it's for lack of a better word, fairly delightful. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of, of uh, like you said, these sort of situational... Well, there's these there, there's just these great scenes of dialogue that are right. very witty uh, without necessarily the characters being witty because uh, uh, Colin Farrell's character is a bit of a dullard. But... Because of that, he is able to speak with a sort of emotional honesty that leads to, you know, the, just these very funny, blunt uh, conversations. I, I mean, it's it's very fun to watch something that's so character-driven mm-hmm. and able, I mean, and this is what Martin McDonough is really good at, is able to convey an emotion without you know he's able to make you feel something as an audience without having to mire you in it for two you know for the entire two hour runtime. He always sort of dances on that on that uh tight wire between dark comedy and tragedy. Like he he can make you gasp in one scene 
and then turn the yeah. thing you were just gasping about into the premise for a joke in the next scene. Yeah. Um, well, it, and, he, mean, and he keeps going back and forth with that. It's like, he, and it's, it, he never, it, it's, it's never uh, sells out the premise of the tragedy no. either. It's just, he, he, he has this sort of uh, philosophy that life is both things, you know, that, that something that is sad and something that is funny can exist together on the same plane, just seen from two different perspectives. Well, I mean, you know the only real difference between comedy and tragedy, right? Like like from a Shakespearean point of view, right? Comedies end in weddings and tragedies end in funerals. Right. But that's the only difference. Like, you know, there's a lot of comedy in in Shakespeare, e- even the tragedies. And mm. and there's a lot of uh, you know, sort of philosophical stargazing in the comedies. It's really, it's just the ending. It's just how do these characters end up after everything that determines the genre? And I, I, I feel like he plays to that in a literative sense uh, more than, than most uh, screenwriters nowadays. Right, and I would say that of all of his work that we've seen thus far, I mean, I can't, I can't speak to his plays because I have not seen them. Um, mm. But I would say of what we've seen from him this far, he sheds the most genre trappings and relies the most on creating dramatic tension just with his actors. Like, you know, in both yeah. in Bruges and Three Billboards are sort of noirish. And Seven Psychopaths is kind of a, you know, wild crime, meta Hollywood genre exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not the most successful one. If I'm, if we're looking at all of his work together, it's a lot of fun. But I don't know if it's a lot more than that. But this feels like he's really trying to strip down everything he does into its bare essence. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. It feels like he doesn't have to have the hook to sell it as a screenplay, right? Like, right. like he has at least enough clout to to just make a movie version of a play. And, right. you know, with that, you know, comes the sort of uh, beautiful fucking natural environment that is Ireland. Uh, but... Mm-hmm. Dramatically speaking, um, I this is a lot more complex, I think, than some of his other work because, like you said, it, it's the plot is just so bare bones. But because of that, the actions of the characters feel sort of mythic. You know, like yeah. like some of the things that happen in this movie feel like the sort of folklore that history is built upon. Yeah. Like I said, there's something kind of, uh, parable about it. Yeah. Um, and I, I wish I was a bit more of a history buff, especially as far as non-American history. Cause I feel like if I knew a lot more about the early years of the, uh, 
the Irish Civil War, I would have a, a firmer read on what these characters mean to each other. And maybe like there might be direct sort of political implications to some of these scenes or some of their actions. Um, well, sure. That, but I, 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 mean, I don't think I, you need to I have that, that to is- walk into the movie either. I think you can enjoy it on its own terms. Exactly. Like the I like I bet there are deeper readings from a historical perspective, but mm-hmm. um no, I I you know, I feel like the characters kind of speak for themselves and uh, Right. And there's enough universality in in the themes that it works outside of just that context. But, you know, as it stands, the uh ceiling of my knowledge on the Irish Civil War is the song Zombies by the Cranberries. <laughs> so um, this uh, was shot by <laughs> this was shot by Ben Davis, uh, who does a lot of bigger movies. Actually, he does a lot of Marvel. Um, he's also shot a lot of stuff for uh, Matthew Vaughn. Um, he's done most of his movies. And this is nothing like any of those. Um, uh, this is gorgeous cinematography i would actually uh, i would put this on my short list of best cinematography i've seen this year in in terms of just capturing the natural beauty of the landscape which is doing a lot of the work but um well yeah yes and no but it, it would be you know these are are yes ireland is very beautiful but it is also shot very well like there's a yeah. there's a lot of scenes that just sort of take place in a pub or take place in like a single bedroom household. Right. Mm -hmm. And those are all shot very dynamically, very uh, visually interesting. Uh, It would be very easy, I think, to underestimate the cinematography based off of the location. Um, Right. But I feel like the, the way the location is sort of weaved into the story. That is something that a cinematographer does versus somebody who just is shooting a play. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, the movie's the movie as minimal as it is and as character driven as it is, feels like it's in an open world. You do, you you don't feel like you're stuck in a small, uh, proscenium, with exactly with these characters yeah. it feels rich it feels like yeah <laughs> as as sad as this movie can be and man there are some gutting moments mm-hmm. uh it all it's also like for the most part you know kind of a a fun hang like yeah y- totally you get the sense of like, yeah, I want to go to the pub with you and just like chill and listen to violin and fiddle and, you know, in uh, uh, just the the way it's able to capture all of that is really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I recommend it. If it happens to be playing in your city, try and go see it. Uh, I don't know how long it'll be until it's on a streamer or something like that, but make a point of seeing it because it's it's a. Uh, it's a good one. I, I give it an A. Uh, yes, I agree. I also give this an A. Um, really well done character study. And just some of the, I think, some of the best screen dialogue that I've heard in a movie in a long time. Right. 
Also, just for the record, according to 23andMe, I am 46% British and Irish. So, <laughs> okay, I can use whatever fucking accent I want. I, I don't think you can, but okay. All right, let's uh, move on to the streaming homework, which uh, you assigned. Uh, this is Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. Give us a description. Uh, it's about Elvis. <laughs> um, specifically, it is about Tom Hanks plays Colonel Tom Parker, who is this carny, they, <laughs> they keep calling him the snowman, uh, and talking about his snow jobs. <laughs> right. Uh, um, and, and how he was able to sort of take these gimmicky acts and present them as, as an attraction, um, in his travels, he stumbles upon, uh, Elvis Presley and his particular style of music, which was, you know, at the time predominantly by, by black performers and Elvis was able to capture that sound and that excitement on stage in a way that was palatable and marketable to white audiences. Uh, so Colonel Tom Parker hooks up with him uh, to elevate his career, make him the biggest fucking star in the world. And then eventually, you know, trap him in a residency in Las Vegas. Um, and, you know, the the movie sort of covers all of their career together. Uh, more from, uh, you know, Tom Parker's perspective uh, is a retrospective as he is laying on his deathbed. Right. And that's sort of the interesting you know, narrative trickery that's going on with this film is that, you know, we've seen a lot of rock and roll biopics. Um, we talked about that last week when we, we went over weird, the, the weird owl parody of one of these rock biopics and all of the cliches that it hits. And there's a lot of those in this movie as well, as far as like the rise and fall story and getting caught up in drugs and sex and, and uh, ab abusive relationships and, you know, disappointed parents and all of that stuff is in this movie as well. But I think what this movie does to sort of set itself apart is we are always viewing Elvis from a third-person perspective. We're always viewing him from, mostly from Hanks's character, uh, manager character. And we have this kind of unreliable narrator thing going on because he's like basically trying to justify why he uses these Fengali like uh, uh, career moves to sort of bleed Elvis dry and take as much as he can from him. But we're since we're getting it from his perspective, it always he's always trying to tell the audience that this is what they want together and they came up together and you know. There's even some aspects, there's some scenes where it seems like Elvis is much more on board 
And there's some scenes where, where you see where he's really not. And I think Lerman, especially as the movie kind of goes into its third act, um, the beginning of the film, uh, the first half of the film is much more wild and experimental and kaleidoscopic editing and, yeah, you know, just flashy, this, like, yeah, that, that mm-hmm. sort of Moulin Rouge, uh, wild, colorful, glitter, fever dream, Baz Luhrmann world. And then the movie sort of comes down to earth a bit more and more as the story sort of sombers. And I think we also see that that perspective shift happens a little bit more and more where Elvis his true feelings about the nature of their relationship comes more and more to the forefront. So it's an interesting experiment in what Baz Luhrmann does with his movies from a stylistic perspective, where the style and the narrative are playing off of each other. Yeah. And I think that aspect of it is very, uh, very interesting and does make it uh, you know, a little different. Uh, it, it reminds me a little more of Rocket Man than, say, Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, I do think another thing that, that is interesting is because it's not from the typical biopic Elvis perspective that we're sort of expecting, I think, uh, you know, it's gives Austin Butler... Uh, who is, I think, fantastic as Elvis. Mm-hmm. It gives him this sort of mythic um, feeling, you know, because even though this is a movie about Elvis, we still never really get to know Elvis. Right. Um, you know, we get to know some stuff, uh, but it, it, it's still a little detached from that. Um, I think kind of the problem here, though, is... You know, he almost feels like, starts to feel like a side character, and Tom Hanks' performance is... Warbly at best. (laughs) This is the year of Tom Hanks doing funny voices. It's been a few years of that. It's been a few years of that. I I think Tom Hanks, for me personally, he's having trouble shifting into his autumn years as an actor. And I don't think he knows exactly what he should be doing right now. I think he, and I don't think Hollywood knows exactly what he should be doing right now. Like, I feel like right. This part, if you had gotten a character actor in yes. this part, I think it would have changed the movie 80% and yeah. for the better. Right. Uh, Imagine this role, but with like Richard Jenkins instead of Tom Hanks. Exactly. In, instead of Tom Hanks just focusing on his weird little voices he's doing now. Right. And his uh, rubber stick on nose. Yeah. I just. So to me, that is the true tragedy of this movie is I, I didn't. And I don't think it's a bad movie. I didn't. Uh, uh, I think it is interesting from a lot of perspectives. Unfortunately, I think it's 20 minutes too long and 
too much of that is Tom Hanks doing a silly voice. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I appreciate the experiment that they're that they're going for narratively, and I think that it is mm-hmm. it's better than just doing the walk the line version, but with Elvis. Um, yes, yeah. I mean, I I think this is both more interesting and better than say Bohemian Rhapsody, which is I I don't know if you ever saw it, but to me it was just like the barest bones. Right. Like this is. A, it's frustrating to me how well that movie did and how many awards it got for just doing the, the bare minimum. Kind of the bare minimum. Right. Yeah, I know. I agree. Especially when we've had rock biopics that, that date back decades and are infinitely more watchable and interesting. But, you know, talking about this movie, uh, I, yeah, I appreciate what it was going for. And I think it mostly pulled it off, mostly on the strength of uh, Austin Butler, who I did not really know what what to expect from him because I've only seen him in a couple things that were very different than this. And okay, I haven't seen him in anything else. Yes, oh, you have. Wait, that's not true. He was. Yeah, I he, guess he was in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, he was Tex in 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 the Manson Gang. Yeah. Um, like oh, I said, interesting. Very different. Um, yeah. And here, yeah, you know, I didn't know he had this in him. I didn't know he could dance. I didn't know he could. I would imagine he's doing most of the singing, although I don't know for certain. Um, but he is doing that voice, and that voice is good. And when you see it on, when you see him on posters and marketing materials, he doesn't really look that much like Elvis. But when you see him in the movie, he totally does. Yeah. And and I think it's it's, I mean that is acting right. That yeah. is his ability to sort of pers- personify this character, uh, this yeah. this person. Yeah, this is um, a this is a yeah, star a star making role for him, and um, he whatever he gets off of this he deserves. Um, he, whether it be uh, he's going to be Fade Rautha in the new Dune, which. Oh yeah. I am a lot more excited after seeing this, although I feel like it's a missed opportunity. They should have cast Tom Holland, but that is a rant for when we see Dune Part Two. Uh, <laughs> um I I do agree that Tom Hanks is miscast here. It, that should have definitely been more of a character actor, somebody who could disappear into that role. I'm always looking for Tom Hanks through the makeup. Um, even even give it to someone, you know, like Christian Bale, who is a, a lead actor, but can do character roles. Like, Tom Hanks just isn't that. I know, I know. And he thinks he is. He's been, he's, he's been thinking this since, like, Lady Killers. But um, this, he just, I don't know. I, I, I don't, I really want him to, to find that script or that thing that, like, gets his mojo back. Yeah. Um. And th- this ain't it, Tom. No, uh, he, he doesn't he, ruin the movie, but almost he doesn't. He's not far from it. He. Yeah. I, I think there's enough other stuff going on here. But right. He For does, his sake, uh, it's great that that uh, that uh, Austin Butler is so good, and that ba- yeah. he's in Basil Luhrmann Land, which there's so much stuff to look at and. 
at first, I'm, I will say, like, the first 25 minutes or so, I was like, this movie is batshit. Like, <laughs> what the fuck is going on? Like, we, we, you know, we see, like, young Elvis, like, in, like, a tent revival with, with, with uh, gospel singers, and then we're, now he's in a comic book, and then we're, now he's, like, being sucked into a pink Cadillac, and it's like this, like, this whirlwind of everything in the kitchen sink aesthetics. And at first I was like almost like natural born killers level fever dream style directing. But it is. And well, well, what I think is interesting is the movie transitions away from it fairly smoothly. Like, yeah, it definitely jolts you at the start. It's very, you know, oh, man, this is Boz Lerman for sure. Yeah. And then as as Elvis's story sort of takes over from the Colonel's story, it eases into this this sort of naturalism uh that I you know, I didn't even really notice till uh, I till really I got near the end of the movie and I was like, "Oh, this turned out to be more normal than it felt." Well, even more so than more normal. I was able to to sort of penetrate the wall of aesthetics into into what Austin Butler was doing as a character and and into the uh the emotional component of the story which we have so many layers removed because it's being told from a different perspective it is wild in this in this uh cinematic kind of way um and it's purposely sort of keeping him at an arm's length and having us look at him as Elvis the celebrity as as opposed to Elvis the human. And so when Lerman slowly peels away each of those barriers, it is almost kind of like a breath of fresh air when you're when you're finally at the center of this storm. Yeah. Yeah. Um and and I and I think that that's intentional. I think that I do think he did know what he was doing with that. And I think, you know, as opposed to something like The Great Gatsby, which is fun to look at, but, you know, I I was totally iced out of it as a story. Um, and yeah, no, I, I know what you're saying. Like, it, it gives you this sense of, like, you know, it, it, it almost makes it more relatable to Elvis as a character because you want to cling to that normalcy the way it, and it sort of forces an empathy from the viewer. Right. Which is an interesting way to do it for sure. Right. I, I do have one issue here in terms of what Baz Luhrmann is bringing stylistically that I think creates uh creates a problem that I'm not sure he's aware of. You know, Baz Luhrmann is a Australian director, a white Australian director in his late fifties, probably. And I feel like his, the way that he sort of approaches historicity through this, this sort of pop art lens comes off a little bit tone deaf when he starts to comment directly about American race relations in the fifties and sixties. And, you know, when we're, when he's like editing back and forth and cross cutting between like, you know, 
what Elvis is doing on stage to what Elvis witnessed as a kid in these these churches and you know bringing the gospel into rock and roll and and then you know uh him portraying himself as like a comic book character and then and then we're going like from that to like the death of Martin Luther King and it's just I something about that feels almost like there's too much detachment for that subject matter to the point because the movie is like obviously trying to to talk about it it's obviously you know um interested in the in these ideas of like Elvis as being this bridge between white culture and black culture and you know sort of how rock and roll developed from that but um it almost feels so aestheticized well, I, you know, that it feels a, somewhat problematic, I, I guess is the best way I can describe that. I understand what you're saying. A little and flippant, I, maybe? I don't disagree. Uh, I don't know if flippant, maybe just... Um, or fetishized? Possibly a little ignorant, I don't know. Um, but at the same time, I feel like Elvis as a historical figure kind of also has that sort of problematic element sure. of you know there there are people who possibly rightfully say he stole black culture and y- you know like so i as far as that goes i i don't know that there's a clean answer you know i don't know that there's a a way to show Elvis as a pop cultural icon without being a little murky as far as the racial element goes. I think this movie is interesting because it, it does try to bring that to the forefront in a way that seems a little naive. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it, I, I know what you're talking about. It's definitely there. Yeah, and, and and the only thing that I can, you know, the only things that I can really attribute that to is sort of the directive of the film to to, to sort of observe all of this uh, history as pop culture as opposed to, um, you know, anything of historical elevation. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, no, yes, you would have had... There's no other way to say it. You'd have a very different Elvis movie if it was directed by a black director. For sure. Um, I think it's really interesting. I, I, I can't say that all of it works. It's not without its problems. But I'm glad I saw it. And I think as far as what Baz Luhrmann has been doing, this is him kind of a comeback a little bit for him. It's not. I'm not gonna say he like hit it out of the ballpark exactly with it, but it it feels like there's an actual um, hunger and drive to to this as opposed to, like I said, something like um, the Great Gatsby, which was like a two hour music video. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree, and I think that's why I wanted to have you watch it, especially in comparison to. Uh, you know, the Weird Al movie we just watched. And, right. Um, there's, you know, there's just been a slew of modern sort of rock biopics lately. And 
I do appreciate that at least in this day and age, uh, they have to have an angle unless it's Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> um, I've also recently rewatched this is a little off topic, but I also recently rewatched uh, Coal Miner's Daughter because of um, the death of Loretta Lynn. Um, okay. And that one came out in like 80, what, three or something? 1980. Yeah. Uh, Sissy Spacek and Tommy Lee Jones. And that movie's just fucking perfect. Um, I've never seen it. And it uh, kind of did all of this, you know, before a lot of these movies did. I mean, and there's, there's been others before it. But um, Coal Miner's Daughter is uh, a great biopic. All right. All right. Well, the next time we record an episode together... The streaming homework I'm going to have us do is the infamous big-budget flop Ishtar, starring Warren Beatty and Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, uh, never seen it. Uh, Interested to check it out. It's uh, streaming on Tubi, if anybody wants to watch along. And if anybody has anything to say about the things we talked about in this episode or previous... You can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at mcguffinpod. Um, you can also uh, leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review on iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts um, or whatever podcast app you use. Please give us a rating to bump us up in the algorithm. Um, you can follow me individually on Twitter and Instagram at VC Cassidy, and you can read the reviews I do for the Idaho State Journal by Googling Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment, and that'll take you to the page where my reviews are archived. Um, what about you? You can follow me on Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. I am... I am uh, 16 days sober off of Twitter um, and hoping to stay that way. And uh, you can also follow my improv show at Improv vs. Standup on Instagram. Um, and uh, come check out a live show if you're in San Diego at Mockingbird Improv. Okay, and that is the episode. If punching a policeman is a sin, then we may as well back up and go home. Bye.